Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Before I introduce today's guests, if you'd like to support the podcast and the over 600 video interviews on our YouTube channel with a monthly or annual contribution, please visit www.energy.media. That's E-N-E-R-G-I dot media, and you'll see support in the navigation bar. This week, I'd like to thank Sean McCarthy, a veteran energy journalist and friend of the show, and Rob Trombley of Alberta for their financial support. In this episode, I'll be talking to Jared Kelly, who's Principal Energy Systems Analyst at Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago, about GREET, the greenhouse gases, regulated emissions, and energy use and technologies model that the Environmental Protection Agency and the California Air Resources Boards and 43 other thousand users use to compare vehicle emissions in the United States. Welcome to the interview, Joe. Thanks so much, Markham. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, look, I'm seeing greet more and more in media analysis. I mean, there's a lot of public interest in emissions from electric vehicles, which are, you know, I think most of the experts I've talked to think that we're either, we've hit the inflection point on the adoption curve or soon will with electric vehicles, of course, depending where you are in the world. And so a lot of interest in uh, emissions from EVs versus internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, and GREET, of course, is often referred to or used uh, in those, that kind of analysis. Give us an overview of GREET, if you will, please. Sure. Um, so GREET, uh, as, a, as a model, uh, was actually first developed in 1995. Uh, our group lead is uh, Dr. Michael Wong. And since then, um, we've been continuing to develop and expand that model to examine uh, a lot of in the, in the vein of transportation, but we've expanded into additional technologies. So considering things like building technologies and, and looking at things a little more generally, um, but we've had a Department of Energy, U.S. Department of Energy support in this uh, effort um, the whole time. And we generally tend to break out GREET into uh, two sort of models, what we call the vehicle cycle and uh, also the fuel cycle. So the fuel cycle is what we consider and, and what many people refer to as a well to wheels analysis. So looking at all the energy um, and materials essentially that go into the production of the energy that we use um, and then characterizing it in terms of uh, life cycle uh, energy usage, life cycle emissions from different stages of energy production and use. Um, and then also the vehicle cycle, like I said, which is all of the energy and materials that go into the production of um, materials. So essentially in this case, the vehicle. Um, and so those things get brought together uh, to conduct what we would call a uh, cradle to grave analysis. So that includes the emissions that are associated with uh, the fuel combustion and with, or let me say energy use, because we're, we're transitioning some, somewhat away from fuel combustion um, and the production of the vehicle. So I hope that's a good overview. That's a, that's a great overview. And I want to ask you a question that came up in an interview I did with Dr. Peter Harrop of ID Tech X in the UK the other day. So he was arguing that by 2030, we're going to see EVs that can get oh, a thousand miles to a, to a charge. And I, I have to say some of our followers on social media were a little skeptical about that. But from his, from his point of view, it was not all about batteries. It's also about weight. 
And that means the materials that go into the vehicle to lighten it up. So you maybe replace steel or aluminum, sure. carbon fiber, say, something, sure. like, something like that. And your model, I assume, would be able to accommodate the changes in material and changes in weight and, and estimate effect on emissions and, and so on. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. We have um, a number of different materials. In fact, we've done a number of lightweighting analyses uh, looking at lightweighting of conventional vehicles, mostly at conventional vehicles, but also across the spectrum of uh, plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, hybrid electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles, fuel cell vehicles, and the, the transition from, let's say, a steel, advanced uh, high-strength steel, uh, to things like aluminum, to things like carbon fiber, and, and looked at those kinds of comparisons. Yeah. Can you share any of the results of those uh, comparisons that you've done? I'm particularly interested in, in carbon fiber because there's an, an effort underway in Alberta and Canada to, mm. to uh, turn bitumen out of the oil sands into a precursor for, for very cheap, plentiful carbon fiber. And it would be, a, a, if they can do it in five to seven years, like they think they can, it would be a huge advance for the North American EV industry. And yeah. so would it provide, uh, based on the analyses that you've done, would carbon fiber provide a big step change or is it a, an incremental change in lightweighting? Uh, so carbon, carbon fiber uh, represents a really interesting opportunity for lightweighting vehicles. Um, there's a number of studies at the more technical level of that sort of how you can achieve that, um, that indicates that you can do, uh, it's not only the lightweighting, but it's also the potential to um, uh, combine components within, within, a, within a vehicle. So for instance, the instrument panel on a vehicle, you know, and you can, instead of having uh, you know, a, a number of different components, you sort of design that such that you integrate multiple components into a single system. Uh, so from that perspective, from a lightweighting perspective, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, one of the challenges with carbon fiber is the need to go through, uh, it, it tends to be a pretty energy intensive material to make. Um, thus on a life cycle perspective, it, it may not break even uh, with the, the original sort of material. Even if you're um, lightweighting, let's say you're taking out uh, 50% uh, of the, the weight or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm using kind of rough numbers, but um, you know, there's, there's a challenge there related to the additional energy required to produce carbon fiber. That said, it, these things aren't foregone conclusions, right? There's still, I think, a lot of technical um, work that's being done within carbon fiber uh, processing to reduce energy consumption, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And again, I've been speaking mostly from the perspective of greenhouse gas emissions uh, and, and energy as opposed to the variety of other um, emissions that we might be concerned with, right? Uh, NOx emissions, SOx emissions, particulate matter, et cetera. Um, so I'm kind of talking just in that sort of greenhouse gas Sure, uh, fair enough. Well, well, let's talk about some examples of uh, internal combustion engine versus electric vehicles. Sure. Now, uh, it, uh, uh, Reuters did an analysis, and I understand you guys did, uh, your, the laboratory did not do this work. So we'll just use this Correct. as an example of someone yeah. who has. But the numbers that uh, Reuters uh, came up with uh, are quite interesting because they compared, uh, for example, a, a, a Tesla 3 uh, mm -hmm. versus a Toyota Corolla. 
And over uh, the um, vehicle miles traveled, their assumption was about 173,000 miles. And mm -hmm. they came up with three scenarios. So 100% hydroelectric, uh, the US energy, uh, average energy mix, which is 23% coal fired and other fossil fuels and renewables. And, uh, and 100% coal fired and really makes the the uh, carbon intensity of that electricity is a, uh, makes a huge difference as to the the break even uh, on ice versus versus EVs about 8400 miles on hydroelectric but 78 almost 79000 miles on 100% coal fired is that right. the kind of general uh, break even we see in in these kinds of analyses yeah, absolutely. That uh, that work by by Reuters, like you say, it utilized our Greek model, um, and they they did a um, they did an analysis, as you say, looking at those break even points, and the trends that they found are consistent with what we would expect, right? Because you have when you're looking at a gasoline uh, battery electric, um, the, depending on the battery size and things like that, um, uh, there's obviously like lots and lots of caveats to put on all of this, but um, if, if we're if we're considering uh, a battery electric vehicle that's you know let's say a 300 mile all electric range that's going to have uh, ten will tend to have a a larger upfront burden in production from a greenhouse gas perspective than an internal combustion engine vehicle. So then you have to operate those vehicles over time to as you note break even in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And so if we're talking about wind electricity or you know. Uh, you mentioned hydropower, right? Those have little to no greenhouse gas emissions associated with the delivery of that electricity. Um, and so that, that low level of um, greenhouse gas emissions does allow you to break even versus a gasoline engine that, that is obviously combusting up gasoline. Uh, coal, on the other hand, does have a significant greenhouse gas um, component to it. And so that's going to take longer. Um, it's really just the characteristic emissions rate um, per kilowatt hour of the electrical grid and versus the fuel efficiency of, well, the fuel efficiency of both the EV, uh, or let's say the energy efficiency of the, the EV and the fuel efficiency, the fuel economy of the, uh, the gasoline vehicle. Yeah, one of the points I've made uh, in uh, an essay recently is that the energy efficiency of uh, internal combustion engine vehicles is relatively fixed. I mean, your, your internal combustion engine is around 20%, give or take. Uh, that's not going to go up much, difficult to improve the efficiency. The amount of energy in uh, the energy density of a, a liter of gasoline is, is pretty much fixed. There's not a lot of uh, improvement to be had on the ice side of the equation. But on the electric side, there's a lot. So you, you know, the uh, Canada is, I think, about 82% non or low emission electricity at this point. 60% uh, mm -hmm. is is electric. That the U.S. is not 23% coal fired. I thought it was a little higher actually. That it was around 30%. But nevertheless, that percentage is dropping. And the current the Biden administration is talking about you know greening up the grid by I think it's 2035. Sure. So th those those are going to change. Then I think we're also looking at changes on the manufacturing side around batteries to address some of these issues. So it seems to me that there's a lot 
of changes coming on the engineering of uh, around electricity production and on man, battery and EV manufacturing that will right. these numbers, you know, right. potentially quite a bit. Right. So uh, you you mentioned the the gasoline engine being pretty fixed and. There's still growth. Um, we're still seeing advancement within the, the IC engines, right? Um, but there's, it's really about taking advantage of um, being at the most efficient point of the, the operating point of the engine. Um, and, and so there, there's, there's movement there. But as you know, there's a lot of advancement, uh, really rapid advancement in, in battery technology. Um, electric motors are um, really highly engineered and, and really efficient already. So there's, there's again, like you know, there's really not a lot of, there's not as much room, let's say, for improvement in the electric motor, but the battery itself, um, are those technologies are expanding or improving rather uh, rapidly. Uh, so we see a lot of growth. Um, and actually Argonne National Labs was uh, instrumental in the development of some of the advanced battery technologies that are that are on the market. And, have, um, and so I do want to certainly plug them for that. Um, what we're seeing now, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this, is the movement from, uh, let's say a few years ago, there was uh, NMC. Uh, so that's a, a lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese cathode material. Um, moving towards a higher nickel content version of that um, over the past several years. And that improves your energy density. So, you know, as we improve energy density, we're, we're getting, uh, we can get more uh, mileage, right, out of the same uh, size battery, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, additionally, there's movement towards um, lithium metal uh, batteries and, and utilizing those in the anode. And so, there's a lot of advancement that's that's I think on the horizon still for these battery technologies, and and so I do think that there's going to be continued growth there. Yeah. What role does uh, the Greet model play in setting a policy in the U.S.? Now we talked at the beginning beginning of the podcast about how the EPA uses it, the mm -hmm. California Resources Board uses it. Uh, is it widely used by other agencies? Uh, what role does it play in, in setting policy? Uh, that's a great question. So GREET doesn't um, set policy, right? We, we, don't, we actually do, do not comment as a group on policy, um, but our tool is, I like to think of what we do as serving as a very independent body that can provide coherent and, and well-vetted, uh, scientifically-backed uh, results for, for other analysts, for policymakers, et cetera. And so, as you note, um, CARB, California Air Resources Board, utilizes a, a version of GREET uh, in their some of their policymaking. Um, the EPA has used GREET to uh, characterize uh, fuel emissions uh, or combustion emissions uh, in some of their policymaking as well. Um, and so, I think it's a really helpful tool in helping others understand the, the effects of different policies that, you know, looking through utilizing our tool as a way to understand how changes might affect um, uh, the outcomes. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to do podcasts with modelers uh, who are looking at decarbonization pathways in quite a number of jurisdictions, you know, like Canada, the US, Latin America, Uganda, places like that. 
And, <laughs> and this kind of modeling seems to be more and more uh, a fixture of policymaking because it gives the policymakers uh, an option to look at different scenarios, different futures. Right. And, uh, you know, we saw, of course, the internal uh, International Energy Agency's net zero by 2050 uh, scenario come out. And so uh, I think that this kind of modeling exercise is becoming more and more, seems to me anyway, more and more mainstream. Yeah, ab absolutely. Life cycle analysis is really what's underpinning this, this work. And there are a number of groups um, that are that are also obviously involved in LCA. We're not the only only people doing this in, in the world. There are another a number of other really uh, great groups out there that are in this space. And so, understanding and I, I think all of us would agree that understanding the effect that uh, policy has from a life cycle perspective is really important because if we're only focusing on tailpipe emissions, just combustion emissions, right? Then you entirely miss if you move to battery electric vehicles that there is that there are emissions associated with electricity production. If those if those battery electric vehicles are only given a zero emissions profile, then you have the potential to uh, mischaracterize the, the effect that they'll have. And so I think that our tool is the GREET model is, is a really useful tool to help policymakers make those choices, right? Gain those insights. Well, let's wrap up the interview with another uh, different type of fuel than electricity and gasoline. Sure. And that is, uh, I'll call them, you know, I was going to call them biofuels, but, you know, ethanol, for instance, uh, hydrogen yeah. would be uh, another one that's especially in transportation being looked at for yeah. long haul trucking, freight trucking. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, GREET's uh, analysis of fuels like that? Yeah, yeah. So Greek has a really, really extensive basis for different biofuels. There's a number of different biofuel pathways with different um, feedstocks available. So whether that's corn, miscanthus, uh, all sorts of different feedstocks are, are available. And there's different, um, it, it, there's really um, a huge opportunity uh, in that space, as you know. Um, for those biofuels. Um, and you mentioned hydrogen. Obviously, hydrogen can be sourced in a number of different ways. Um, so we have examinations of that. So you could do steam methane reforming, right, which has a, a, a higher uh, greenhouse gas emissions perspective than, let's say, uh, electrolysis that, that's utilizing uh, wind or solar as its uh, basis. Um, there's also uh, uh, advancement in what's called what are called electrofuels, um, so that's sort of a, a newer thing that's gaining interest. And we have folks that in our team that are uh, doing that analysis, looking at characterizing those fuels from a greenhouse gas perspective. Um, so yeah, we've, we've got really good coverage within that space for a number of different fuels, a number of different feedstocks. Um, so yeah, and, and you mentioned long haul trucking. And, and that is definitely a space where we do have that kind of uh, information. I don't know if you're you have this information, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, we've done a number of interviews with uh, experts about uh, methane emissions from oil and gas production. So the, you mentioned creating uh, hydrogen from uh, natural gas using methane steam reforming, and and of course uh, it, when that's done, that's usually or at least it's planned to be accompanied by uh, carbon capture and storage. Right. So you, there's big, big plans afoot in Western Canada to do that because 
old oil and gas reservoirs. But the, but the question becomes, what are the methane emissions associated with that? And we don't really know. Uh, the measuring technology up until recently has not been very good. The, the estimates have not been very accurate. Uh, I've seen some studies now you know, where they've gone back and, and, and used the, the more current technology and they find that you know, anywhere from one and a half to three times higher uh, than mm -hmm. they had originally estimated. How does your model accommodate that? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, you're talking about methane emissions, and, and for those um, that are maybe not as familiar, methane emissions are a, have a significant greenhouse gas forcing, um, and so even small methane emissions can can lead to significant greenhouse gas uh, impacts. Um, our our team, our modeling effort, utilizes what's what's available in literature for this, um, and this is a little bit outside of my specialty. Um, but I do have colleagues that work in this space more looking at um, the greenhouse gas emission or the methane emissions associated with um, uh, petroleum uh, production, natural gas production. And, and we have done studies in that, that space. Um, but I, 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 will, I will just say that I don't think that I'm the right person to, to speak on, on that uh, particular topic. It's a robust topic that's got a lot of, um, um, there is a lot of debate, as you note. And what you're talking about, um, certainly you want to make sure that you're characterizing those methane emissions. You want to understand if, as we say, you're, you were saying, okay, well, we've got this great opportunity to do something with steam methane reforming, but if we're leaking a lot of methane somewhere along the line, then that represents a potential greenhouse gas forcing. And so that's the kind of thing that REIT can help understand. You know, what, if we're doing this work, we could say, let's say, for instance, you do a, a sensitivity analysis around that. And you could say, well, here's your hotspot. You need to identify, we need to identify like what those emissions actually are. And then um, you, the producers could find ways to reduce that or uh, regulations could be you know, put in place. So that kind of thing. Jared, thank you very much for this. I really appreciate your insights and mm -hmm. uh, we'll look forward to uh, having you on again. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It was a pleasure.